Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the Society for Nautical Research, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. It's the 7th of December. This continues our series of excerpts from the logbook of the whaler Swan of Hull from 1836. She's trapped in the ice in the Davis Straits between Baffin Island and the west coast of Greenland. They're in for some serious trouble. Wednesday, 7th December. This day we have experienced a wonderful preservation from shipwreck. 7am the ice in which we are frozen came in contact with two large bergs aground. The concussion was tremendous and the ice split about 40 yards on each side of us and the ship drifted between the two bergs enclosed in a long, narrow screed of ice. It is impossible to conceive a more miraculous escape. Had the ship been taken by the current in any other direction it would have been impossible for her to have escaped the bergs lying so close to each other. Thermometer 10 below zero. The temperatures recorded in the Swan's logbook are nearly 10 degrees centigrade colder than today's average temperature for the exact region in which she was stuck. Hello everyone, as regular listeners to our podcast will know, one of the key aspects of maritime historical research that is helping us understand our modern world is the use of ships' logbooks, like that of the Swan, to understand and map climate change in various regions across the world. And today I'm going to dig into this further as I'm talking to the excellent Dr Matthew Eyre. Matt is a climate detective. What a title! More officially, a historical climatologist at the Arctic Institute of North America, and he uses 200-year-old documents surviving from the Arctic whaling trade to look back at the Arctic climate. It's an important topic. Over the past 30 years, the Arctic has warmed at roughly twice the rate as the entire globe, a phenomenon known as Arctic amplification. Ships' logbooks are now an accepted part of the repertoire of data sources in climate change studies. Matt's an expert on the particular issues surrounding logbooks from the Arctic region in what is known as the pre-instrumental period, and he's tackled important questions linked to this research. How, for example, can you reliably express narrative descriptions of wind, weather and sea ice in index form? 
And how then can you most effectively manage scientific analysis of such data, which, remember, was not recorded for such purposes? How do you even digitise historical logbooks? Anyway, enough from me. Here's Matt. I hope you enjoy it. In fact, I think it was one of the most interesting conversations that I've ever had with another historian. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm delighted to bring you this podcast. I'm, I, I've got lots of episodes lined up, and it's the one I'm most excited about. And I'm going to be talking to Matt Eyre, who is over in Calgary. Matt, how did you get from Newcastle to Calgary? That's my first question. It's a slightly convoluted story. Um, I ended up going to the University of Sunderland to read an undergrad in geography, um, from which point I was invited to go and do a PhD in historical climatology, which is what we're going to talk about, um, looking at the Arctic. And while I was doing it about six months in, I decided if I'm going to study the Arctic, I should really go. Um, It was a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. So I managed to get onto a U.S. Coast Guard icebreaker, uh, so the U.S. CGC Healy, uh, in 2012 uh, on one of their scientific expeditions uh, in the Arctic Ocean north of Alaska. So on the basis of about three emails, I flew to uh, Uktiavik, which is the northernmost point of Alaska, um, landed and went, what have I done? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But met up with the the scientific team there and and spent six weeks on board. This icebreaker getting up to 84 and a half degrees north in the Arctic Ocean um, with a bunch of American researchers, which was an amazing experience, an absolute culture shock. Um, Lots of of great things happened. Saw some polar bears, you know, got to see sea ice, which is the focus of my research. Um, But I had to sit to pay my way. I had to sit watch for six hours a day on the multi-beam sonar. So the main, <laughs> the main point of this scientific trip was to map the seafloor. Yeah. And these icebreakers are ridiculously expensive to run on a day-to-day basis. So if anything breaks with the sonar, you know, it's very expensive to go back and, and get that bit you missed. Were you, were you in one of those dark rooms just peering at a kind of thing for hours on end? Not quite, but I was looking at lots of computer screens with about six other people um, and I had no clue what was going on. I was basically told, if it flashes red, go and get someone. <laughs> oh, that's very good. Um, can you remember your first view of sea ice? I can remember mine. I was in the Denmark Strait in between uh, Iceland and Greenland, and I saw it on the horizon. Um, and it was remarkable. The, the sky was a different colour above the ice. We could see that first. And then when we approached it, we were starting to look out for uh, bits of ice that had broken off that were going to endanger the ship. And then we saw a long line... Um, just across the horizon, it was it was foreboding. Um, it was an incredible experience. Yeah, I was super excited. I took about hundred photographs of this piece of this one piece of multi year ice that drifted past us, past us on the first day, and it wasn't for about another two days that we actually got to the pack. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of incredible. Uh, I think what I found most incredible was seeing my first polar bear, and we were five hundred miles north of Alaska. Yeah, like wow. we're miles away from land, and, and then you see this huge mammal, which you know you presume a bear is a land mammal. Yeah. But, and I was I was just kind of blown away at the way it moves. But anyway, I was on this icebreaker, sitting watch six hours a day with this group of people, and one of them happened to be a professor at the University of Fairbanks, who was studying gravity anomalies or some something to do with gravity that I really don't understand. Um, 
<laughs> but we got on really, really well. And then after that trip finished, I, I went back to Sunderland and continued my PhD studies. And I got an email one day saying, oh, hey, Matt, how are you doing? Have you finished your PhD yet? Uh, which I probably should have at that point. Uh, <laughs> he said, there's this project at Calgary, the Arctic Institute of North America. It sounds like what you do. You should apply for the job there. I never heard of the Arctic Institute in North America at that point. Um, I wasn't even looking for a job. What I was doing was focusing on writing my thesis. Um, I looked at it and I was like, oh yeah, that is what I do. I should probably apply. <laughs> if I don't get it, I really shouldn't be doing what I'm doing. So well, um, tell us what, you, what, what exactly it is that you do. It sounds amazing. I, I read somewhere that you're a climate detective. That sounded awesome. Yeah, um, I can bill myself as a climate detective. Uh, it's usually when I'm talking to, to school children because it, it sounds a lot cooler than historical climatologist. Yeah. Um, but my research, I use uh, the surviving logbooks from the British Arctic whaling trade to reconstruct past Arctic climate, um, particularly sea ice, but also look at precipitation, atmospheric circulation. Um, well, we'll get back to that in a minute. Let's just talk about the whaling trade because this is all, it all revolves around the whaling trade, doesn't it? Um, when, when did commercial whaling start? So whales have been important throughout history. You can go back to prehistory and, and whales are, are important. Uh, if you go to Skara Bray on Orkney, you have you know, whale bone products found in the archaeological record there. But it wasn't until the 12th century that in the Bay of Biscay that the Basques really pioneered um, commercial whaling by hunting the North Atlantic right whale. Um, it was well known you could render the, the blubber down from whales by this point to, to make an oil. And that oil could be used to light things, to lubricate things, to, to treat fabrics. Um, so, so commercial whaling started in the Bay of Biscay in the 12th century. And that went on for nigh on 400 years. Um, but really that population of, of North Atlantic right whales, which has never recovered, you know, you might see the odd one there now, um, was basically extinct by the 16th century. But it was around this time, uh, Willem Barentz from, from uh, Holland was searching for a Northwest Passage. Uh, no, Northeast Passage, <laughs> sorry. Um, and he discovered Svalbard. Yeah. And he comes back and he publishes this pamphlet and there's this brilliant map produced um, and it shows you whales everywhere. And these are the, the larger, fatter, older, slower cousins of the North Atlantic right whale, the bowhead whale. The bowhead whale lives exclusively in the Arctic regions, um, but, but it's very much a, a similar whale. So it's a, a baleen whale and um, it happens to float when it dies. Ah, uh, so helpful. yes, very, <laughs> very helpful. helpful. Uh, and because it's slow, you can catch it with a hand harpoon. So this is the the beginnings of the Arctic whaling trade, which was to go on for nearly four hundred years. Yeah. Um, and when this pamphlet's published, the Company of Merchant Adventurers in the UK uh, or Britain at the time, should I say, gets gets word of this and sends outfits two ships to go to go and to prosecute this trade and um, has a charter from the crown on grounds of first discovery which yeah. is a little bit contentious because um, the Dutch do the same thing um, and there's a bit of conflict but ultimately um, Britain are terrible at it uh, and the Dutch win out ah, uh, why were you so bad at it 
just not not expecting it to be as difficult as it is. We're not able to catch as many as we needed. I think there was, I guess, a lot of naivety on how difficult the conditions were going to be. Yeah. Also, as a nation, both Britain and the Netherlands were not were not whaling nations at that point. Yeah, that's a good so point, we, isn't it? You've got to yes. learn this new technology and how so, do you render down blubber and how do you catch these beasts? So they were employing uh, bass harpooners, inspectioners. To, oh, that's interesting because, yeah, because the Basques are the ones who'd started it off in the Bay of Biscay all that time yeah. ago. Ah. Um, but there was a lot of conflict. Um, so then whaling boats were having to bring up um, a guard as well, which was increasing the costs. And if you didn't catch any whales, then you were making huge losses. Mm. Um, so the, the Dutch went out in these early years and, and came to dominate that industry around Svalbard, um, sending nearly a thousand boats up a year at that height. Like this was huge industrial scale harvesting of, of these, these whales. Um, the bowheads are probably the oldest living mammal on the planet. Um, they're known to live well over 200 years. Um, they don't really reproduce until about 15 years and they only have one calf every couple of years. Mm. So their population began to, to plummet fairly rapidly. Yeah. Um, but Europe was reliant on whale oil at this point. It was really our only form of oil. You know, agriculture wasn't reliable enough yet to produce, you know, standard, like kind of standard price seed oils. Um, we hadn't found crude oil at that point. So marine mammal oil was kind of the main oil trade. Yeah, and um, it, means the, it means the government get involved, doesn't it? It's like, right, we've got to do something. This is so important to us. We need it so much. I love the fact that it's, um, it's used for so many different things, but varied things. So it's a yeah. bit like the Swiss army knife of what they needed in, in the kind of the 17th century. Someone was like, I really need to set fire to something. And I also really need to lubricate something. And I also yeah. really need to do something, I don't know, whatever else they did. And then the answer yeah. was in the whale oil. It solved all of their problems. Yeah, uh, it was used in soap at one point it, was used to light every street lamp in London. Um, you know, again, machinery, um, the the baleen, so they, they termed it whalebone, this kind of flexible um, keratin in their mouth where you usually get teeth. Mm -hmm. um, they're filter feeders, they're, they're feeding on zooplankton. Um, these came in plates that were about up to 12 feet long. Um, and this, this was really valuable because it was used it was so prized in the, the fashion industry to make corsets and petticoats. So, you know, ah, you've heard of whalebone corsets. You'll have heard of whalebone corsets. Yeah. It's not bone. It's baleen. Ah, it's their so, teeth, mouth. Yeah. So it's the it's like this this byproduct of, of going after the blubber and after 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 the oil, but at times it actually propped up the industry because of its cost. Okay. Um, but by you know early 18th century, um, you know there'd been a few wars. We weren't on the best relations with with the Dutch. Um, the government decided you know Britain needed to be self-sufficient in its supply of whale oil, so it started the bounty system. And this started at 20 shillings per tonne of boat that would go up, and a few people kind of had a go, and then they upped it to 30 shillings, and a few more people had a go, but really not the numbers that were needed. And then in 1749, they upped it to 40 shillings and everyone went, ah, we could make some money off this. So they're given the money? How does that work? How do the bounty actually work? 
So you had to to send a ship of between 200 and 400 tons up to the Arctic whaling industry to attempt to hunt bowhead whales. If you if you caught bowhead whales, you know it was very lucrative. Like this is big money. And um, when you get back, you have to produce the logbook of your voyage to customs yeah. house, and then they will issue you with your bounty. Of forty thing. shillings per ton, or whatever, it, whatever yeah. it was. So, so that's you, ex, that's extra money on top of all the money you've made from your your whaling. Yes, or offsetting your losses should you lose anything, not, not catch any. You know, since since kind of the, the beginnings of the age of say, a logbooks have been um, a navigational necessity. You know, even at the at the very basic level, doing dead reckoning. So, you know, not everyone had marine chronometers when they first came out. They were, you know. The, the latest in scientific thinking and extremely expensive. It wasn't really until the late 19th century, early 20th century that marine chronometers became affordable. Um, so your logbook was was life and death. It was your, where have you been and where are you going? How are you going to get back home? So every day in this logbook, they'd record the wind and the weather and any observations. Which and is where you come in now as a, as a historian, because this is exactly what you're looking for. Exactly. Um, not many ships went to the Arctic. It's, it's a terrible place to take a ship. You know, sea ice is extremely dangerous, especially if you're in a wooden vessel. Conditions are horrible. It's cold. It can be extremely stormy. Um, you know, if you have a storm and you're in ice, you can very easily stove your boat and sink it. Um, so whaling was, you know, it was that lucrative. People were willing to take that risk. Um, but the benefit of that, to me, is that some of these logbooks still exist, and we can go back through them and look at these observations. Now, there's not many. So there was well over 6,000 voyages sent from British ports to the Arctic to hunt mm-hmm. bowhead whales. Of those 6,000, there are less than 300 that I know of that still exist. Wow. That's not what I was expecting. No. Are they all in the same place? No, they're not. They are here. As well. They are here, there, and everywhere. I found some here in Canada. There's some in America. Um, they are mainly where you'd expect them to be in the archives um, in historic whaling ports. So Hull, Dundee, uh, London is. But because each whaling vessel was its own, its own, in, its own company. You know, this wasn't. This wasn't like the Hudson's Bay Company or the East India Company. It wasn't this huge outfit. It was usually a couple of ship owners or a captain. Um, so what they did with their logbook after they received their bounty payment was entirely up to them. And it's mere serendipity that any of these survived because families have, have held on to them and donated them. And I'm, I'm certain there are still more out there. Have you and found any in private hands? I found a couple, yeah. Um there's, thankfully, there's been a few historians before me who've, who've tended to to find these out and at least have received copies of them. Yeah, you say we should say now that I mean your work your work is reliant on generations of archivists and historians and uh, people looking after and caring for this material and making it accessible through their own catalogues. So it's a really important, you know, the foundations of history and historical research here that um, it seems very clear for you. Yes, um, my job would be absolutely impossible. Uh, without the archives that preserve these these documents today, 
Um, well, if anyone's um, listening and you're sitting on a uh, a logbook of an Arctic whaler, please can you send it to Matt? <laughs> we'll take photos of it because it oh. will help us understand climate change. I would love that. <laughs> <laughs> it would be good. I do want people to get in touch. So let's talk about the, you know, the things you're actually looking for in these logbooks. What, what clues are you hunting for? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Predominantly sea ice. Um, they tell us all sorts, but the sea ice is really the kind of unique component. Um, sea ice is extremely important to our global climate system. Um, it, it affects the, the whole global climate and uh, how... We all experience it. So what happens in the Arctic and what's happening in the Arctic now um, is of relevance to everyone. So since the Industrial Revolution and the, you know, the mass burning of fossil fuels and the heating of the atmosphere, um, the, Ar- the Arctic sea ice has been shrinking. Um, this is a problem in, in two ways. Uh, first, the sea ice is very reflective. It has a high albedo, so it reflects a lot of the solar radiation that hits it. Um, and this regulates basically how much radiation we get from the sun, um, which in turn influences our weather, our climate system. Um, now, when we heat the atmosphere up a little bit, that melts a little bit of ice. We all know what happens when you take ice out of the freezer, it begins to melt. Um, and the same thing's happening in the Arctic. So the sea ice melts a little bit, but that exposes a little bit more ocean. And the ocean has a very low albedo. It absorbs a lot of the solar radiation that hits it. So that heats up the, the ocean around the sea ice, which melts a little bit more sea ice, which exposes a little bit more ocean, which melts a little <laughs> bit more sea ice. And we have this positive feedback effect. 
man. And sea ice melts and grows throughout the seasons anyway, but it's growing less and melting more. So at the, the height of winter, we have our, our, the winter extent of sea ice. The, the, the ice has expanded across the Arctic Oceans. And then by about September, middle of September, it shrank back to its lowest level um, for the year. And we, we started measuring this uh, from space in 1979, the first mm. satellite went up. And ever since we've been taking photos, that level, which it shrinks to, the, the summer minimum, has been getting smaller and smaller on average. So there is there's variation year on year, so it's not always smaller than the next year, but the trend line is fairly drastic. And if you follow that trend line down, before 2050, there'll be no sea ice in the Arctic Ocean um, during the summer months, at least, um, which which causes more warming. But that's that destroys you know the habitat of the Arctic, which is is, is reliant on sea ice. Um, the other thing sea ice does is influence uh, something called the thermohaline circulation. So that's a a global circulation of heat and salt in it. It kind, kind of exists to, to balance the Earth's uh, temperature. So we're, we're hot at the equator and we're cold at the poles. So I guess the, the most well-known section of the thermohaline circulation is the Gulf Stream. It keeps mm. Europe, Europe very temperate. You know, I'm from Newcastle, we're at 55 degrees north. If it gets to minus two in winter, it's cold winter. Uh, now I'm in Canada. If I go to 55 degrees north in Canada, it can reach minus 50 wow. without breaking as well. Wow! So, so the difference is huge, and that's this 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 surface ocean current is taking this heat from from the equator over across to Europe and keeping the temperatures relatively warm in comparison to the rest of the latitude yeah. where where we are. Um, as that travels further north. And, and gets up towards Svalbard and up to the higher latitudes, um, it begins to cool down and it begins to freeze. When sea freezes, the salt drops out of it, and you get this you get these brine channels through the sea ice if you ever, ever look at a cross section of sea ice, and you get this really cold, really briny, dense water as seas freezing, and that sinks, and that forms the next part of this this circulation called Atlantic deep water. And then that travels all the way down the Southern Ocean and around to it. If you stop the freezing, you are taking out a component of this huge conveyor belt. Yeah. Um, so it will begin to break down. So, so with the warming of the Arctic, we could actually get the cooling of Europe. Mm. Yeah. It's, it, it's a shocking consequences, isn't it? I mean, I'm particularly fascinated in how, as a historian, you've ended up doing this, particularly because you're, you're clearly part scientist as well as part historian. You said there were only a few, a few hundred logbooks. What are you going to do once you've, you've found all of those logbooks? What's the next source for trying to understand what's going on? So I've pretty much found them all yep. that I know of. So I my, my research focuses on um, Davis Straits and Baffin Bay, so between Greenland and Canada. Um, which was which was kind of the last bastion of British Arctic whaling. So for the 19th century, they basically predominate there. The, the bowheads around Svalbard had been hunting to, hunted to near extinction, and, and no one really really went there anymore. We should just say where Svalbard is. Do you want to help tell us out there so we, we so, can sort our geography out in our heads? If you're in the UK and you pretty much go due north, eventually you'll bump into Svalbard. 
so look if you're on a map look east of Greenland and you'll see these islands kind of level with almost the northern tip of Greenland and you're talking about this area of research now which is to the west of Greenland west of Greenland yeah and it's almost like a an enclosed example for the rest of the Arctic oh, um, I see. you know there are different mechanisms there and, and the wider Arctic is is far more important than this region but we have data for this region through these logbooks and they're able to show us uh, things about the sea ice and things about the climate throughout the, the 19th century. So I have logbooks from 1809 through to 1911 from there. And the way whalers were hunting the bowhead is they were following them as they were feeding. So the bowheads are filter feeders. They feed on zooplankton, which is feeding on phytoplankton, which is living at the edge of the ice in what we call the marginal ice zone, where it can photosynthesize. So it's kind of clinging on to the bottom of the ice, but it's still getting sunlight. So then as the ice is melting back through the summer months, the zooplankton is following the ice. The, whale, the whales are following the zooplankton. And then the whalers are following the whales. And they're keeping a logbook as they do it. And you're following the whalers. And I'm following the whalers, <laughs> yeah. Many, many years later. Uh, it's so, fantastic. Uh, yeah, go on. So you, can, you go through these and you mine that data. So there, is, there have been big advances in optical character recognition, and that's really the, the next um, leap in terms of historical climatology is being able to, to digitally read these, these documents. But at the I moment, see. it's all done by hand. So yeah. I, I image these at documents. human eye as much as by hand, isn't it? Yes. Being able to read, the, read that damn handwriting. It, it looks hard to begin with. But give yourself an hour, and then it, and it's fine for most most authors. Um, some people really can't write. When you, yeah, that's you get true. Down but you do, it. um, and it's a really good point because you you really get your eye in. I remember when I first was working with historical documents, I thought oh, I've just signed up to do a PhD. I can't read that first letter. What am I going to do? Yeah, <laughs> what am I going to exactly, do for the next three years? That's exactly how I felt. Um, you're you're kind of you know you're fluent or at, at re- reading historic handwriting. I've heard it's similar if you um, if you're doing you know the 15th century or uh, you know even further back where it, it looks completely bewildering. But then after a bit, you something in your brain just allows you to be able to read it, and then you're reading like someone from that period. It's amazing. Your brain has made this kind of genetic jump, and it's turned you into someone from 1823. <laughs> It's it's kind of funny because it influences the way I write now as well because I oh, spend so I spend so many time so, so much of my day reading these documents and transcribing them and, and looking at them in a lot of detail that when I come to write things I find myself using some of the terms and sentence structures and um, which people kind of you know when people read my work they're like that sounds weird. Yeah. <laughs> Why have you signed it John Ross? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah optical sort of computer recognition so being able to that sounds fraught with danger how, how can you possibly go about doing that having a computer scan handwritten documents so th- this is not my area of expertise okay um, <laughs> but uh artificial intelligence and you can i have i've read and seen things where you can train the artificial intelligence within the program to recognize someone's handwriting wow Wow. So you go through a document and you say, well, that's a B and that's an A. And yeah, and eventually yeah I see, I see. It, it can understand all the letters and then it will produce a text version, which then you can just take out the data. Whereas at the moment, I read the logbook and I fill out my database 
yeah. one column at a time. Ooh, well, reading it's half the fun, I reckon. Are there any? I mean, I love anything like this, particularly logbooks, which might seem and sound quite dry, but occasionally you get you get them which are. It's like they've been injected with the personality of the person who's writing them. That they they might be more, they might elaborate more on their um, on their entries, or there, there are lots of doodles, often little jots on the side, which I quite like. Yes, they're not all official logbooks that I use. When I can get a hold of them, great. They're very data rich in terms of environmental data, um, but they're not necessarily available. Um, there are a number of surgeon diaries. So the surgeons that went on board the whalers tended to be the most scientifically minded people on board. and they, they tended That's interesting because I know they're very rare for the um, 18th century, particularly in the Royal Navy. That was just a handful of surgeons' journals survive. Yeah, so this is mainly 19th century. Um, but yeah, again, still a handful. Um, but when you get them, they're very, they're very rich in not just the environmental data, but but the whole context of the voyage and life at sea and the flora and the fauna, because because these people tended to be interested in everything and very yeah. curious, they would write about it, and you know they tended to be literate as well. So so they would write about, it and you get these fantastic insights into what it was like to be on one of these voyages that you don't always get from a logbook. Yeah, and they're often commenting on the um, yeah the, the fishes they see and the birds they see. I read yep. one one once when um, I can't remember where it was now, but it was talking about this bird he'd never seen landed and landed on the deck, and they were remarking on its beauty, and then it just said, "Tasted awful." <laughs> yeah, they yeah, it it tend to kill everything they see. <laughs> they don't they? Just yeah. yeah, that that's interesting. Grab the rifle. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, I, I love this idea of you doing a kind of a micro history where it's all quite contained in this particular area of your sea, uh, which you're going to become quite connected with. Are there other areas out of sea out there that you know you, we, we can do the same project that you're undertaking? You can apply that to somewhere else. So you could do it for basically the all the oceans. Um, my, you know, it's my work is focused on this little bit of the Arctic and this, this very small subset of logbooks that, that managed to exist. Um, there's been other work in the Arctic um, working on some of the, the surviving whaling logbooks uh, for around Svalbard, but also the ships of the Royal Navy ships of exploration. So yeah. search for the Northwest Passage. Um, but where it where historical climatology is is really going to be useful, and there's been projects in the past which have done an amazing amount of work, but still really only scratch the surface, is the the mining of this environmental data from all of the Royal Navy logbooks that... Yeah, regardless of where it is, because you're just doing the Arctic, but yeah, there, there yeah. are ships all over the world all the time from, yes. you know, well... You've probably got hundreds of thousands, yeah. if not close, of ships for the last 400 years, four to 500 years, covering the, the global ocean. Of, and they have daily maritime observations of, of wind and weather. And if you can get all that information out, and, and some of it has been been mined already from, from Royal Navy and East India Company and Hudson's Bay, um, and I'm just talking about the British ships here, not to mention any other country, um, you can then take that data and put them into um, global reanalysis models. So these are hind casting models that try to reconstruct past climate between known observations. Mm, okay. So the, the more information you have, the more accurate your model can become. And then those models become the basis for forecasting models. This is what's happened in the past. This, 
and then we can more accurately predict what might happen in the future. Well, there we go. That's quite a big thought to end on. Uh, Matt, thank you so much for your time. I'm, I'm quite jealous. I'm very jealous. I want to come out. I'm going to come to Calgary. I'm going to come to Calgary as soon as I can, see what you guys are up to. Um, I hope you've enjoyed that, everyone. Um, and uh, yeah, well, I think we'll, we'll come back to you, Matt, see how, how everything is progressing. Uh, we really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that and that you're enjoying all of the episodes of our new podcast. There have been some interesting additions to the Society for Nautical Research's free forum that I'd like to share with you now. And you can find more information about these at snr.org.uk, where, of course, you can also reply. First up from Nicholas Kaiser. I'm looking for information or suggested sources on headwear in the Royal Navy. I know some of the general trends in the 1760s, 70s, tricorn hats were standard for officers as well as marines, as was the trend in wider society. Bicorn hats generally took over during the French Revolutionary Wars. In most films, popular depictions, we also see younger officers as well as marines wearing some sort of top hat. I'm curious if anyone has done any work on how these trends actually progressed. How standard, for example, was the switch to bicorns among the officers? When was it complete? Was there indeed a generational change as depicted in Master and Commander, where Aubrey wears a Napoleonic-style bicorn, his officers wearing theirs fore and aft, and the young midshipmen wearing top hats day to day? If anyone has any information or sources, they'd be much appreciated. Um, Thank you very much, Nicholas, for getting in touch and for posting that on the forum. Uh, Another one here from Gary Morgan. I'm thoroughly going through Broadley's and Bartlow's three Dorset captains at Trafalgar. Thomas Hardy, Charles Bullen, Henry Digby, printed in 1906 and came across a reference that resonated with this particular post. So this is part of a strand replying to a topic, uh, HMS Victory handling of shot to the guns. At page 140, there is a reference taken from Midshipman Roberts's remark book in which he says that on the 19th of October 1805, employed on board the Victory, getting up a thousand shot on each deck, stowing chests, etc., clearing for action. If correct, and the Midshipman's remark book seems to be generally taken as so, then she had enough shot on deck from the outset. In general terms, that is depending on actual number of broadsides per deck fired, The issue then becomes where they were stored. Obviously, there are shot around the combings and the use of shot garlands, but at 30 rounds per gun, that seems a lot. I suppose if you use the triangular garlands, they can take 10 shot each stacked pyramidal fashion. So perhaps not so unrealistic. Thank you very much for that new information, Gary. Well, if anyone does know the answers to these, please help us out. You can, of course, find us on social media and do follow. We're on Twitter at Nautical History and on Mariner's Mirror Pod on Instagram and on YouTube. If you are kind enough to take the time to rate us and review us um, on iTunes, I'd be hugely grateful and I will read out every single review. Here's one from Shep Base. Five stars. Fascinating insight. I dropped into this podcast for a 10-minute listen whilst doing some DIY and ended up binge listening to four episodes. Well done, user. I learned so much and love Sam's easy report with his incredibly knowledgeable guests. Really excellent series. More, please. Uh, This from Duncan QDG. 
Five stars, a safe port for naval history. An excellent start, Sam. I'm a fan of your written work and other podcasts, and the first episode was exactly what I would expect. Conversational and informative, never dry. Please do summon the Royal Navy during the wars, as well as the fascinating French Revolutionary and Napoleonic eras. Some episodes on the very brave early Portuguese mariners who set out exploring the coast of Africa and out into the Indian Ocean would be great. Maybe a trip to the archives at Greenwich when they reopen. Okay, Duncan, we'll see if we can sort all that out. Dan C. Jam. Sounds a cornucopia. Five stars. This sounds fascinating. If the series lives up to the promise of its introduction, I see no reason it won't give the enthusiasm and obvious knowledge of the presenters. It will be great. Uh, The mix of more traditional maritime history and archaeology with reportage on life at sea now, heritage and fresh perspectives on other subjects from a maritime angle should make for an extraordinarily kaleidoscopic series. Blimey! Uh, that wonderful review there. Uh, Nobbit58, finally five stars. There is finally a fantastic podcast on nautical history. Mara's Mirror is conversational, informative and engaging listener with a range of experts. I can't wait to see what comes next. So please take the time to review us. I will read it out and I hope you'll very much enjoy things. Bye, guys. <laughs> <laughs>